This is Cultured Hollywood for Smart People for Friday, October 9th, 2020. I'm Nico. I'm your host. We're talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them as we always do. But first, here's a little bit of the late, great Eddie Van Halen shredding on his fender. Good. What's happening? Welcome to the program. Uh, yeah, that's Eddie Van Halen. Dead this week at the age of 65. Uh, yet another victim of that vicious disease we know as cancer. How are we? I hope you're well. Uh, what a week, huh? What a week to be a human being. Am I right? God damn, this year will not end. It will not end. It will not cease until every living legend has been vanquished, apparently. Uh, we got to start with uh, with Eddie. We got to start with Van Halen. That, of course, was Eruption, the legendary guitar solo. Uh, th- I think like that is just Eddie Van Halen at the peak of his powers, just doing whatever the hell he wants. And, uh, you know, just making every other aspiring guitar player embarrassed to be pursuing the same craft as him. You know, that's just the type of solo that is. It's like I hear Eddie Van Halen playing Eruption for two minutes and like I should just quit what I'm doing and become a plumber. Like, is it too late to go to plumbing college if there is such a thing? Like I can grow a beer belly and I can get pants low enough to show my butt crack. I can go out and buy a plunger. Is it too late? Of course, it's never too late to become a plunger or a plumber. Sorry. (laughs) It is, however, too late probably in your life to be uh, like one eighth as gifted as Eddie Van Halen was, I think, one of the two or three greatest guitar players of all time. And I'm going to try to eulogize him here. I I will not do half as good a job as every other person on the Internet that has written something about him, that has talked about him on a podcast. Um, Like there are just people that are more qualified and that have a closer relationship to the music of Van Halen than I ever did. Frankly, Uh, I'm a Van Halen fan. I, you know, love me some Panama. I think 1984 is, you know, one of the great rock albums of all time and also like just sort of a foundational text for that era of sort of glam rock that, you know, that 80s rock that I think devolved into trash later in the decade and then earlier in the 90s. Um, but Van Halen sort of wrote the blueprint for that entire era. And although some of his imitators are not as well-renowned as Eddie was, you know, I'm thinking about the Def Leppards of the world, the Twisted Sisters of the world, the Poisons of the world, whatever. Uh, like, he still remains a god among men. And I think in anyone's ranking, a top five guitar player of all time. Uh, I, I did want to read, actually, from another critic. <laughs> Silly me, calling myself a critic. 
<laughs> I'm not a critic. I'm an idiot with a podcast. I'm an idiot with a $60 microphone. No, I'm not a critic. I'm going to read the words of a critic that I admire. His name is Chuck Klosterman. He wrote a book uh, in the early 2000s called Fargo Rock City, a heavy metal odyssey in rural North Dakota. Uh, I'm a big fan of Chuck's work. He's written several uh, books and short pieces that I absolutely adore. And this is one of my favorites of his. Again, it's called Fargo Rock City, a heavy metal odyssey in rural North Dakota. And it's essentially just 300 pages of a cultural critic riffing about heavy metal and his experience discovering certain heavy metal bands, immersing himself in the heavy metal scene as just a kid living in North Dakota. And it's just freaking awesome. I love books like this. I love 300 pages of just a dude riffing about music that he likes. So uh, I recommend you pick up a copy or get the ebook. I don't know if it's available on ebook or not, but I'm going to read this from my soft cover copy of Fargo Rock City which I got at a used bookstore in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, <laughs> here we go. This is Chuck talking now. Every so often, guitar magazines come out with a list that's usually titled something like The 100 Greatest Axe Gods Ever. Sometimes Eddie Van Halen is number one on the list, and sometimes he's number two behind Jimi Hendrix. The Eddie-Jimmy battle always goes back and forth from pole to pole. Ironically, Eddie always seems to fall back to number two anytime Van Halen releases a new record. This is because almost every new Van Halen album is horrifically disappointing. But Eddie still scores very well whenever people are waiting for a new Van Halen LP because it makes all those young guitar hopefuls harken back to Eruption, which I just played for you. And for those of you who actually care about which of these people is the better player, the answer is Hendrix. Van Halen remains the most influential guitar player of all time, but only because nobody can figure out how to rip Hendrix off. (laughs) which I uh, certainly think is very clever. Then he goes on talking about um, Eddie's sort of uh, his inspirations, what got him into uh, guitar playing in the first place. And Eddie himself credited Eric Clapton for getting him involved. Here's uh, another excerpt from Fargo Rock City. Quote, over the past two decades, Eddie Van Halen has taken to citing Eric Clapton as the man who made him want to become a guitar player. This is probably true. Of course, it's almost impossible to hear Clapton's influence in Van Halen's music. I've searched for it, and it's not there. On House of Pain, the last cut on 1984, Eddie opens with a delicious guitar intro, and at the very end, just before the lyrics start, there's a certain bluesy quality to how he finishes the riff. That's about as Clapton-esque as Van Halen gets. This, of course, is a good thing. Eddie and Eric are certainly among the greatest rock guitarists who have ever lived, but for totally different reasons. Listening to Clapton is almost like getting a sensual message from a woman you've loved for the past 10 years. Listening to Van Halen is like having the best sex of your life with three foxy nursing students you met at a tasty freeze. Tasty freeze, sorry. <laughs> what, a, what a Midwest reference that is. This is why rock historians and intellectuals feel comfortable lionizing Eric Clapton, even though every credible guy in the world will play Van Halen tapes when his wife isn't around. I think this is just the perfect way to describe the genius of Eddie Van Halen. Uh, He sort of made trashy music. You know, he made like poppy music. He made jump. Like you still hear jump on classic rock radio every like three hours. I think that might be a rule. It might be like an FCC regulation. If you are a classic rock station called The River, you have to play Eddie Van Halen's Jump, I think, once every three hours. And, like, 
I'm sure I wasn't around in the 80s. I'm sure it got played at junior prom. Like, I'm sure it was like a big hit among high school kids. And I'm sure like guys and girls both danced to it. And I'm sure like it was uh, featured in a lot of movies of the era. Same with Panama. Like you listen to Panama now and it's a great karaoke song. It is a great song to jam to in Guitar Hero back when that game was the biggest thing in the world. But it's certainly not Eric Clapton and it's certainly not Jimi Hendrix. It's certainly not even Jimmy Page. Like all of those guys and those are all among the five or ten greatest guitar players of all time. Even Slash. I would include Slash in, in that category. Like all of them thought of themselves as blues musicians above anything else. Like they were aspiring to BB King. In, in, you know, they weren't necessarily aspiring to what Prince was aspiring to or what Bruce Springsteen was aspiring to or even to what Bob Dylan was aspiring to. Like I include Stevie Ray Vaughan in this category. I include Jeff Beck in this category. I, you know, even include like to a lesser extent, George Harrison in this category and certainly Eric Clapton in this category. Like all of them were sort of making elevated rock music. Like they were still doing rock, but they were doing rock in like a, in a very traditional storied sense. And it was all influenced by the blues. And look, I, I love me Led Zeppelin. I think Jimmy Page is probably my favorite guitar player of all time. Um, but like Zeppelin was not brave enough to put out a song like Panama. Do you know what I mean? Like Zeppelin would have never done something so nakedly, explicitly, viscerally rock and roll in the purest sense of the word. And that's what Panama is. Like, Van Halen is not trying to make more out of this than it actually is. I have a guitar here, and I'm going to shred this fucking guitar until your faces peel off of your skulls and your entire body melts to the floor. We are going to rock the hell out of this song, turn the knob on your radio as loud as it will allow, and then try to crank it even further And like, we are going to have sex now. We are not going to make love. We are going to have sex to some nursing students. (laughs) I totally understand what Klosterman is saying here. There is something to be said for artists that function well within the mainstream and that make, I don't even want to say generic art, but just popular art and are able to rise above their peer groups despite what is considered just like, I don't know, pretty generic 80s radio fodder. There's something to be said for a mainstream pop hit as good as Jump with guitar solos as good as the guitar solos in Jump. There's something to be said for walking into a studio and in one take shredding on Michael Jackson's Beat It. There's something to be said for the brilliance of that guitar solo. Like Steven Spielberg is one of the great directors of all time. I don't want to cross too much into other genres and other mediums. Um, but there is something to be said for the brilliance of Steven Spielberg. He's not making Goodfellas. He's not making Raging Bull. He's not making Taxi Driver. That is something that Martin Scorsese was put on this earth to do. But it is just as hard to make Jurassic Park. It is just as hard to make E.T. It is just as hard to make Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just as hard as you know to make Jaws. I always have a ton of respect for artists that are able to maintain their integrity and that are able to push the needle forward while still making stuff that is pretty run of the mill, pretty mainstream. And like in 2020, you listen to twisted sister, you listen to poison, you listen to, 
Quiet Riot. You know, you, you, you even listen to Motley Crue now. And it's like, ugh. thank God the 80s were left in the 80s. Um, but like Van Halen, you still listen to those records. And like I just played for you, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the greatest perhaps guitar solo of all time. It still holds up. And it's still like it'll still knock your socks off if you turn the dial all the way up on your radio. Nothing but respect for the late, great Van Halen. And also, like, the cheap imitators, the reason why, like, we all roll our eyes at glam rock is because so many artists thought they could rip off Van Halen. So many guitar players thought, if only I play like Eddie, then I'll earn a number one single or two. And that is definitely true. Many of those acts did earn a number one single or two, but none of them are Eddie Van Halen. I think he's one of the great guitar players of all time. Again, I would put him in my top five, perhaps even my top two or three. Um, Hendrix is number one, but if you want to put Van Halen at number two, totally cool with me. Um, That's Eddie Van Halen, and he is gone too soon, and uh, the world mourns a loss of an absolute god. You know what I mean? Just an absolute fucking God. We need to rock. You know what I mean? We need more rock in our lives. All of us collectively. Every once in a while, we just need to fucking rock. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with just bobbing your heads uncontrollably like the beginning of Wayne's World. Just every once in a while. Just by yourself. Because I know like you're supposed to stay away from people these days. Just close the door. Maybe lock it in your bedroom. And just either put the headphones on or tell Alexa, like, hey, let's play some Panama. And let's just, like, go apoplectic here. Let's give ourselves a seizure, as Eddie Van Halen would have wanted us to. Uh, Rest in peace to a legend. I'm going to now play Panama because uh, all this talk of Panama makes me want to listen to Panama. So just for my own selfish reasons, here's Van Halen's Panama. And when we come back, we're talking more pop culture. Stick around. The show is cultured. Okay, um, not to get back on this subject, uh, but movie theaters are dying <laughs> along with our rock stars. Movie theaters are dying. Um, Regal theaters are closing indefinitely, as is their counterpart overseas, Cineworld. This news comes after several big budget blockbusters have been pushed off of their initial release dates. Among them, Wonder Woman, 1984, Black Widow, West Side Story, No Time to Die, Jurassic Park Dominion, Dune, uh, I believe just Disney Pixar's Soul is still on the calendar for November, although I could be wrong about that. By the time this podcast comes out, I'm probably wrong about that. Um, 
Regal is the second largest movie theater chain in the country behind AMC. It's a big loss. The uh, national, uh, uh, what do you call that? National uh, Alliance of Theater Owners, I think. NATO. I think it's NATO, as a matter of fact. (laughs) But they have warned about this. They said, hey, look, man, like movie theaters are in big, big trouble. And if we don't get some bailouts pretty soon, like we're just going to go under. Like we need the cash now because even though we're open, people are not seeing us. First of all, we're not open in New York. We're not open in L.A. Those are the two biggest movie markets, two biggest markets, period, in the entire country. Um, So that is tough to promote a movie when it's not showing in New York or L.A., but like also people are just apprehensive to go to the movies these days as evident by Tenant. Tenant is a major blockbuster from a major blockbuster director, perhaps the preeminent blockbuster director of his generation, Christopher Nolan. And nobody saw that movie. It bombed. It bombed hard, bombed really hard. I think part of it is because the reaction to Tenant was lukewarm. Part of it was the COVID thing. But I also think just in general, the COVID dilemma has uh, has fast-tracked a learned behavior that was already inevitable. And that is, people are just used to seeing movies at home for the first time. We're just used to it. At first, it was a gimmick. Then it became a nice novelty. And now it is the norm. And that is just what COVID did to us. Like, obviously, it was going that way anyway. Irishman, Marriage Story... Bird Box, all massive Netflix movies last year, and Netflix is only ramping up their production schedule. There are only more streaming service with only more options. Uh, Disney Plus, of course, just debuted Mulan, and all of these uh, these Marvel Cinematic Universe TV shows are coming to the platform as well. It's all going that way anyway. But COVID hit the fast-forward button. It was the final nail in the coffin. Audiences have been sitting home for six months and they just got used to it they got too damn used to it they got used to watching mulan on disney plus they got used to watching the five bloods on netflix they got used to watching boy state on apple tv they got used to seeing an american pickle on hbo max it's over it's over and you know it's over you know why it's over Because you probably had a first date over the next three months, or you probably wanted to go out with your girlfriend, or you probably wanted to go out with the kids, or you probably want to go out with your buddies, and I guarantee you, the movies were not in your top 10 options. Like, I'm just going to sit at home and play poker. Is that okay with everyone? Like, cool, let's just get a bunch of people over and we're going to play cards because I ain't going to fucking catch a cough because... (laughs) I wanted to sit through two and a half hours of tenant. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's out of, it's out of the ether. It's out of the zeitgeist. It's so funny how quickly these things change, how trends and how behavior and how all of this stuff changes. Like group communal activities have been forever altered because of this virus. Who knows if we'll ever return to normalcy? Who knows if that, you know, Normalcy will be the, quote, new normal, as much as I hate that buzzword so much. Who knows what it's going to look like? But it sure seems like things change awfully quick. And I guarantee you, unless you're like me and you rushed out of the theater to see Tenant, you didn't even consider it. 
you did not even consider going to your local AMC over the past two months. You might not even know it's open because all they're showing are re-releases of Hocus Pocus. And you could just play your VHS copy of Hocus Pocus. I know you have like three of them. It's over, guys. It's over. I don't know how many more ways to tell you this. My initial prediction was that AMC will not be open this November. I think I said either they're going to file bankruptcy or just like the doors will be shut. There will be no operations in AMC theaters this November. I stand behind that prediction. In fact, it might be a little sooner. If Regal is any indication, like that is a major corporation, Cineworld. They had a lot of skin in this game and they did not open flippantly. You know what I mean? They, they, they were 100% committed to this. And it failed. And it bombed. And they were hoping that Christopher Nolan could save cinema. And he didn't. He just didn't. Maybe if it was uh, Memento, he could have saved cinema. <laughs> All right. What else are we going to talk about? Um, okay. Oh, no. Uh, um, guys, remember that movie Moonlight won the Oscar and everything it was a big debacle because Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway had the wrong card and uh, La La Land was initially given the Oscar and then Moonlight got the Oscar and like Mahershala Ali was, it was like a star making performance for him and this guy Barry Jenkins made the movie and it's like, what's this guy going to do next? And then they give him money to do a movie called If Beale Street Could Talk, and that was a really awesome movie with one of the great scores I've ever heard in my life. Uh, but, like, no one saw it, and everyone's like, yeah, I wonder what happened to Barry Jenkins. Well, Disney answers that question for you. Funny story about old Barry. Um, you hear that? Yes, as is the circle of life. Everyone returns to Disney someday. So what happens? You make an A24 movie, you know, starring some teenager, and it's about like, you know, them discovering they're gay or something. Right? Or just discovering that they want to live in Sacramento again. And everybody loves it, and you get a bunch of shiny trophies, and as is the circle of life, uh, Bob Iger calls. And he says, Hey, Barry, say, what are you doing over the next three fucking years of your life? Any chance you want to go in a green screen room with a bunch of snowballs and, uh, and make a Lion King sequel? And Barry, knowing the tradition, the grand tradition of the Hollywood studio system, acknowledging that he is just one of many members of the circle of life, he says, where do I sign?
Um, <laughs> oh, film Twitter was aghast at this news. Oh, my goodness. Barry, what are you doing? Guys, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who asked for this. I don't know what that phone call was like. I want to be a fly on the wall. I want to be just on the third end of that call. I'll hit the mute button. I just want to listen in. A little wiretap action. What the hell is going on with, with Bob Iger and Barry Jenkins? What are they talking about? What was the pitch here? What was that conversation like? Like, what could his take be on this material that, like, he felt good about, that he felt, like, artistically fulfilled about? What could they have told him? Was he the one that came up with the pitch? I want to know what this was like. Here's what Deadline reported on. Okay, this is what Deadline says the project is going to look like. Um, The story will further explore the mythology of the characters, including Mufasa's origin story. Moving the story forward while looking back, conjures memories of the Godfather Part (laughs) 2 set on the African plain with a continuation of the tradition of the music that was a key part of the 1994 animated classic, the uh, 2019 film, and the blockbuster Broadway stage transfer. (laughs) I know it was you, Pumba. You broke my heart. In my pride rock. Where my wife sleeps. Where my children play with their gazelles. Godfather part two in the African plains. We're pushing the story forward, but we're going to revisit the origin story of Mufasa which is what he was a lion and he was the biggest one, right? I mean, isn't that the origin story? (laughs) It's not like Mufasa landed on Ellis Island and had to like kill a local mob boss as part of his ascent. I mean, like how like, devious is the origin story of Mufasa. How perilous is that tale? Did he have to fight another scar ahead of time? Like, what was that like? I mean, these are the questions that I, as a film goer, really want to know. You know, it's like, it's that type of thing. I leave the movies and I'm just tossing and turning at night because I felt like John Favreau left me with a lot of questions. You know? I mean, my main question, of course, is why the fuck did they remake this movie? That's question number one. But question number two is, what is the political structure of Pride Rock? Are there free and fair elections to determine the Lion King? And like, just talk to me about Mufasa's early political days. Like when he was clerking for Antonin Scalia, you know? (laughs) How did it begin? And uh, how can we explore his character even further. I I guess this was the pitch. I don't know. I guess that's what Bob Iger said to Barry Jenkins and he bought it. It's just so confusing to me. It, It really is just astounding. Like I understand 
directors cashing a check. I get it. I totally get it. I get it if Taika Waititi wants to make Thor movies for the rest of his life. I get it if James Gunn wants to make Suicide Squad movies for the rest of his life. Whatever. It's fine. You're allowed to cash a paycheck. But why The Lion King? Why a sequel to... Like, you understand. Like, you are going to be in a room with Andy Serkis and a bunch of, like, snowballs taped to his forehead... And then you're going to go in a recording studio with like Sam Jackson or something and Beyonce and Donald Glover. And that's what you're going to call directing. Like that's that's directing Barry Jenkins. Like I understand even if he wants to work within the 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 realm of blockbusters. I understand if he wants to make a Black Panther movie like Ryan Coogler. Like if you said Barry Jenkins is on board to direct Black Panther 2, that's cool. Like at least like the Marvel movies are very run of the mill and they are paint by numbers. And I wish that he would never make a Marvel movie. I wish that he would continue to make A24 movies for the rest of his life. I, I But like at least like there is a visual component. There is an artistic component. Like you can still put a directorial stamp on something like Black Panther 2. But uh, ah, I saw that first movie. <laughs> like I saw it. It's just the Lion King, but the animals move slower. It's just the Lion King, except Simba no longer smiles. I mean, that's it. That's the movie. It was like a shot for shot remake of the first one. I, like uh, the only thing, and I tweeted this actually when the news broke last week. Um, like the only way that I can justify this is if Barry Jenkins makes Lion King one and a half, but a live action remake of Lion King one and a half, which is essentially the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to Lion King's uh, Hamlet. Um, but yeah, guys, what are we doing here? Is it Hamlet or Macbeth? No, it's Hamlet, right? Man, I'm so bad with Shakespeare. I'm so awful. Lion King. I think it's Macbeth, actually. Yeah, it's Macbeth. Sorry. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Macbeth. Absolutely. Yeah, I I know my I know my English lit. Guys, I don't know what to say about this. They they got another one. They got another one. Bob Iger just is is the auteur trapper. That's what he is. Like Leo in the Revenant. He's just going around pillaging Hollywood. You know, and just it just removing the scalps of every auteur. It's all it's it's really it's it's horrendous what Bob Iger is doing to all of our great young directors. And honestly, like Barry Jenkins, say whatever you want about Moonlight, say whatever you want about Beale Street. Like I have mixed feelings on both, although I really enjoy both movies. He is definitely one of the ten most exciting directors working today. Definitely. And he's right in his prime right now. Like he is at his most like creatively alive. He just won the Oscar a couple years ago. He just made a critically adored movie two years ago. I mean, he should be pumping out three or four masterpieces over the next decade. But like, this is what the studio system does now. And it didn't used to work that way. Like it used to be, I'm Steven Spielberg and I make blockbusters or I'm Martin Scorsese and I make independent movies or I make studio movies, but at least like low budget, creatively ambitious studio movies. Now that line has been blurred. 
Like now you make one good independent movie and then the studio system swallows you up for three studio movies. And it didn't used to work that way. And it certainly didn't used to work that way with pieces of intellectual property. I did not like that first Lion King movie. I have no idea what the pitch on the second movie is going to be. I, I, I don't know if there's any way to get me into that theater. Um, and even Barry Jenkins involvement. I just don't see it. I just don't see how he puts his stamp on this material. You know what I mean? Ugh. Whatever. Whatever. It's strange. I, it just It's really bizarre news. <laughs> and that whole thing in the deadline report about... Uh, about Godfather 2. <laughs> uh, they got another one. It happens. It happens. That's what Disney does. They will not cease. Uh, here's another story um, in what should really be a segment called Who the Hell Asked for This? You know what? Let's do it right now. Let's see. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, I really should have a stinger for this. Um, okay, here we go, guys. It's time. Just doing this on the fly right now. It's time for a brand new segment. Sometimes Hollywood just churns out another piece of intellectual property. And it begs the question. That's on all of our minds. Whether it's Lion King 2 or Borat 2. The hell asked for this. I never understood the original Borat. I'm sorry, guys. I just don't get it. I've never gotten it. The movie came out in 2006. Is that right? I would have been 11 years old at the time. Sixth grader. Middle school, this movie was insanely popular in my peer group. Insanely popular. Every kid in my grade, I should say every male kid in my grade, with the exception of myself, had a Borat impression. Because everyone had seen the movie except for me. Because it was rated R and I wasn't allowed to see it yet. Years later, I watched the movie. I thought it was whatever. But of course, all of the jokes had been spoiled for me because I just heard them in class. You know, some fucking idiot, you know, Kevin in the back row was just like, hey, I like you, your wife, my name Borat. And I never got it. I just didn't get it. It wasn't funny to me in class. It wasn't funny to me on the screen. Sorry. That time has come and gone. I, it is a fine movie. It is a good comedy. Uh, it, it was certainly uh, innovative for its time. The combination of like uh you know hidden camera um sort of you know pranks uh, documentary filmmaking slash like scripted comedy and sketch yeah great he's a genius sasha baron cohen whatever i just don't get it i don't get this character i don't get these movies um but here is number two and we're gonna comment on the events of today i i don't know i'm not a sasha baron cohen guy I just, I'm not, I, I just like, don't think his brand of sketch comedy really proves anything, or at least does not prove as much as he thinks he's proving. 
what was that show he did a couple years ago? This is America in America, something like that, where he would like, uh, like trick Ted Cruz to say something stupid on camera. Like I, whatever it was, like all those movies and all those shows, Ali G, same thing. All of those shows prove that just people are polite and like they're not going to curse out a, a, a man that speaks broken English. Like that's basically all of his shows and all of his movies. That is the premise. Like this guy speaks broken English and he's hard to understand, but like I'm going to help him out because he's trying to adjust his G string and or his jock strap. And you know, I'm polite. That's how my mom raised me. Whatever. I mean, okay. People are gullible. Big whoop. I, I don't like hidden camera shows. I just don't. I don't like them. I've never liked them. I don't like candid camera. I, I never liked punked. Like all those shows proved to me is that, yeah, people are pretty nice and like, they're going to go along with whatever stupid premise you put in front of them because like we are generally trusting people and good people. And it actually proves the exact opposite than what he's intending to improve. Like Sasha Baron Cohen goes out there trying to make people look stupid, trying to make them look cruel, trying to make them look vicious. But you know, it ends up being that uh, that ABC show, What Would You Do?, which is the opposite of the Sasha Baron Cohen thing. It's the opposite of punk. You put people in extraordinary situations, you hide the camera in the corner, and turns out most of the time they do the right thing. I don't care about Borat. I don't. I don't know who this is for. Again, like, man children like me are not going to watch this movie. Are they? I hope not. Maybe they will. Maybe Kevin in the back row is now Kevin on the sofa in his trailer park and he uh, is really into subsequent movie film. <laughs> Whatever. I, I don't think kids are going to watch this though, right? Are the sixth graders of today, do they have any interest in this? I don't know. Again, who is this for? Here's another piece of news from uh, who, who the hell is this for? Jamie Foxx has been cast in the upcoming Spider-Man film, Spider-Man 3 from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, (laughs) Tom Holland is back. I assume like Michael Keaton's in this movie, maybe. I don't know. But Jamie Foxx as Electro is going to return to the Spider-Man franchise. His last appearance was in a very bad movie called The Amazing Spider-Man 2. He was the main villain in that film. Uh, I think also like Paul Giamatti was in that and uh, and the dude from the place beyond the pines played like the green goblin, right? I think so. Yeah, uh, that's a bad movie with uh, a, a pretty weird performance from Jamie Foxx. If I'm being frank, like I, I just don't like anyone in that movie. I think everybody is pretty bad across the board, including Andrew Garfield, who I have mixed thoughts on from time to time. I guess Emma Stone's good in that movie. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Paul Giamatti is good in that movie. Yeah, Paul Giamatti's good. Paul Giamatti should have been brought back. Here's what I don't understand. Is there any untapped potential here with the Electro character? I don't remember if he dies. I don't think he dies, right? I think he lives. So they implied that he could perhaps return for a sequel. But it's not like they teased the character of Electro like they did with the rhinoceros character 
played by Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti appears in the beginning and the end of that film. I think a total of 10 minutes. It was implied that he would return for future sequels. It's one thing if you want to bring back the rhino and you want to say, okay, here's the Paul Giamatti character that you were promised. I don't feel that way about Electro. I can't believe I'm having this conversation right now. What am I doing? Why am I commenting on this seriously? Why am I commenting on this as though it matters? (laughs) Who cares? Who cares who the villain is? Who cares if it's a rhino or a hippo or a giraffe or who the hell cares who the villain is, Nico? My God, he looked cool. He was a blue man and Jamie Foxx is fun. Whatever. Bring him back. You know what? You're right. I'm sorry, everyone, <laughs> for getting on that that strange soapbox. Um, what else did I want to talk about today? Anything? Um, I don't think so. I think we're done. I think we're done here. I, I maybe wanted to talk like Fleetwood Mac for five minutes. I mean, my only question about Fleetwood Mac is like, do kids not know who Fleetwood Mac is? Um. Because the song Dreams is now the number one song in the country because some dude on a skateboard put out a video or a TikTok with Dreams playing in the background. Guys, I got to be honest. I haven't seen the video. I just haven't seen the video. Uh, Maybe let me go on YouTube real quick and watch it here for the first time. I don't have TikTok. But apparently this is a really big deal. Ocean Spray. The guy's drinking Ocean Spray. Was that Cranberry? Uh, Nathan... Apodica, aka Dogface Vibin, to Fleetwood Mac's dreams. Wait, this guy's like 60. Why does this man have a TikTok? He's on a skateboard and he's drinking cranberry juice on the highway. Now he is lip syncing to Stevie Nicks. And that's the video. Okay. Uh, and apparently that 23 seconds uh, caused Fleetwood Mac to chart number one on the Billboard charts for the first time in like two decades. <laughs> like, okay. And I was having this argument with my brother yesterday because he contends that like less than 20% of kids under 25 have heard that song. And I I think like that might be a little low. I thought it was over 50%, but he like, I don't know. He, he, he remains steadfast that like kids just don't know who Fleetwood Mac is, which is insane to me because Fleetwood Mac was always like growing up one of those acts. Like I think of them as in the same breath as the Beatles or like Springsteen and the E street band or Bon Jovi or Rolling Stones. Like I I just think of them as just like a, a very populist foundational uh, recording artist. And I think of like specifically the album rumors as one of the great pop albums of all time, one of the great rock albums of all time. And I just assume like, yeah, Fleetwood Mac just has a bunch of songs that people know, even if they don't know that it's Fleetwood Mac. And like my brother was like, yeah, they don't know who the E street band is either. Like they just, they don't know who Bon Jovi is either. They don't know who the Rolling Stones are either. They, They just don't know. They just don't know. And they hear that song and it sounds kind of cool because it is kind of cool. But it's just insane to me that like, let me put it this way. Okay. So let's imagine like you're 15 years old and you're watching football on Sunday. Um, 
and a commercial comes on. Let's say it's a Pepsi commercial and the Pepsi commercial features Michael Jackson's Thriller or it features Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Both of those songs, whatever you want to say about those songs, they are iconic cultural artifacts that no matter how young, how old, what gender, what musical taste, like you know those songs because those songs seem to have come out before you were even alive and have been in the zeitgeist ever since you were a young child. Like that song is just part of the soundtrack to your life, whether you want it to be or not. Um, like even if you didn't know the name of the song or even if you don't know the artist that performs the song, I still feel like if you were 13, you would be like, oh yeah, I, I know that. You know, I've heard the like, I feel like you would just know that. And so you wouldn't feel an obligation to listen to it on Spotify. You know, I, I feel the same way about Van Halen's jump. Like I hear jump all the fucking time. And because of that, because I am so just I'm so bombarded by that record I don't feel the need to seek it out because I just figured like it will come up eventually. It'll be on the radio or I'll be at a club where it'll come on or I, I don't go to clubs. Let's be very clear. But like I'll be at a dive bar that plays that song or I'll hear it on TV or a contestant on the voice will sing it. Like I just assume it'll be a part of my life in some way. So I don't need to seek it out. I thought like dreams by Fleetwood Mac would be one of those songs for kids. Like even if they didn't know who Fleetwood Mac was, even if they didn't know who Stevie Nicks was, even if they didn't know the name of the song dreams, they would just have heard the song before. And it's just crazy to me that dreams can still be a cultural phenomenon. Like it's funny to me that dreams can still be a zeitgeisty song because it feels so removed like from that time in its life cycle. Does that make any sense? Like at one point in time, that song was the biggest song in the country, but now it's just, it's Beethoven. You know what I mean? It's Mozart. It's like anytime you hear a Mozart concerto, like anytime a movie that you know is scored to the music of Beethoven, like you watch Clockwork Orange or whatever, like anytime you hear those songs, anytime you hear Fly to the Bumblebee, it's like, no, that's just a song that's always been around, and it, it, it is so iconic that it can no longer be cool. But I guess now Fleetwood Mac is cool again, because no one knows the song Dreams, which is both crazy, but also inspiring to know that we are still capable of falling in love with Fleetwood Mac songs again, because I know I certainly am. All right. That's an episode. That's a podcast. That's cultured. I thank you so very, very much for listening. Rest in peace to the great Eddie Van Halen, and I do hope you join me next week. I'm thinking Fridays might be the new recording day because Fridays for me are just generally more open, and it's kind of nice to have a week's worth of pop culture to talk about. Not a lot of stories generally break on on Mondays. Um, so this this actually might work out well. Maybe next Friday I'll be back here. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but, but that is the plan for the time being. I have a new soundboard in here. I have to get configured so I can, uh, I can use some sound effects here on the program. Um, but yeah, next week, same time, same place. Won't you join me? I love you so very, very much. Join our discord. If you want to get in on the action, talk to your favorite podcast hosts, Nick, Adam, Rob, myself, 
all the fantasy book of the month crew. We're all on there. We're always responding to your comments. We're always getting into stupid debates. We're sometimes playing games with one another um, and uh, talking about it live in one of the chat rooms. So join the discord, go to the website, too many thoughts, or tmt.media for short and click on the, the uh, link in the sidebar. Join our discord movie hall of fame. Why is this a thing? Fantasy book of the month. All those great shows. Two Cents Radio, available on the website as well. I love you. Come back. Because you know what happens then. You and I, oh, we get so very, very cultured. <laughs> <laughs>